to learn to preach with one eye open, sort of surveying the audience, because we forget stuff sometimes. Uh, I listen to a number of engaged couples, uh, and there's an engaged couple that's going to be married in just about two weeks, and they're sitting right in front of me, uh, Chelsea and Jonathan. And uh, so we, we pray for you guys, too, and we're excited for you guys and hope you're encouraged. Glad you're with us this morning. No public pressure, but Chelsea's a member here. Good leadership would keep her in this church. No, <laughs> I'm teasing, brother. We love you, man. Uh, glad you guys are worshiping with us. Everybody in Luke chapter 22? Amen. Amen. Betrayal depends upon the exploitation of the best virtues. Where there isn't love and trust, where there isn't hope, betrayal cannot be effective. If we're skeptical, if we're critical, if we're judgmental, if we're not trusting, it's not easy for us to be betrayed. So betrayal is one of those human experiences that really takes the best of humanity and exploits it in a way that brings pain. A spouse who has suffered adultery knows that the pain of adultery is doubled because of the love that it exploited, because of the trust that it exploited, because of the assumption of faithfulness that it exploited. Such is the case as we look at the events over this past week and we think about the relationship between citizens and those in authority. People are rightly critical, for example, of Hillary Clinton and her tenure as Secretary of State and her handling of private emails or emails that were classified but handled on a private server. We, we don't need to repeat all the pol political shenanigans that go along with that, but, but what's, what are we watching? We're watching an office holder confer trust, conferred a kind of respect, conferred a kind of hope for faithfulness in the role, and all of that, whether intentionally or unintentionally, exploited, betrayed. We watched the events unfold this past week in the interactions between some officers and some civilians. And we're called to mind or, or, or prompted to remember that government can only be effective insofar as its people trust it. Insofar as its people confer to government respect and the honor that it's due. There's a, there's a sacred trust between governors and people. And, and, and the people can only trust insofar as that trust which is given to government is stewarded well. Is, is returned in trust, returned in respect, returned in honor. As we think of the events of the last week, we're not merely watching the replay of horrific incidents between people in uniform and people on the streets. We're watching something happen to public trust to public virtue, 
And no matter what side you're on, it feels like a betrayal. Like a failure to support uniformed officers, like a failure to protect innocent civilians. Betrayal exploits the greatest of virtues. That's why it hurts so long. That's why it's so hard to recover from it. It's a painful human experience. But it's not just a human experience. Well, we have not suffered it alone, no matter what form it's taken. Christ Jesus, the Son of God, was betrayed. God himself has been betrayed by his people. And yet it's in how he responds to his betrayal that we find redemption. It's by the means of betrayal that God not only teaches us something about the frailty of humanity, but he actually redeems humanity itself, repairs the broken and the breached trust, restores the honor and dignity of human life. Well, God enters into our system of betrayal, our world of betrayal, and in his own betrayal creates a new world, a new humanity, a new people where all things are proper and right in his control. I want to suggest to you that's what we discover when we look at Luke 22, verses 1 to 38. You'll remember that Jesus is in Jerusalem, and he has been teaching in the synagogues every day since he arrived there. And you will recall that he has finally put an end to the public opposition that the religious leaders expressed toward him in that day. He's, he's finally shut them up and shut them down, but that doesn't mean that they're done. And here we're going to see really the beginning of the end of Jesus's earthly life. And we're going to see here betrayal, but we're also going to see redemption. As we read through this chapter and as we think about this text, I want us to hang our thoughts on, on five points this morning, five observations if you're taking, num taking notes. Number one, and all of them begin with Jesus's betrayal. So number one, Jesus's betrayal, number one, was prompted by Satan. Was prompted by Satan. That's what we see in verses one to six. Number two, Jesus's, Jesus's uh, betrayal was predicted in the scriptures. It was predicted in the scriptures. Number three, Jesus's betrayal purchases us a kingdom. It purchased us a kingdom. Number four, Jesus' betrayal protects us from Satan. Protects us from Satan. And number five, our Lord's betrayal provides us a mission. Provides us a mission. Prompted by Satan, predicted in the scriptures, purchases a kingdom, protects from Satan, provides a mission. Luke 22, verses 1 to 38. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented 
and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercised lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Father, we pray that you would help us to see Christ your son. 
Draw us near to him. Let us get to know him, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing we want to see is that our Lord's betrayal was prompted by Satan. Notice, first of all, in verse 1, it occurs at a sanctified time. It occurs at a holy time. It's the feast of unleavened bread, which was also called the Passover. For Jewish people, this was a very sanctified or, or holy time. The feast and Passover go back centuries to the time of Moses and the exodus from from Egypt when God delivered his people from Pharaoh. It goes back to the 10th plague in Exodus where God sent out the angel of death in Exodus chapter 12 and he promised that he would strike dead the firstborn of every household with this exception. He instructed Israel, his people, to prepare a meal, which included a lamb and bitter herbs. And he told them to eat that meal fully dressed and to eat it hurriedly because the Passover would soon take place, but but also to take the blood of that lamb and to put it on the doorposts of their homes. And he made this promise, when the angel of death comes through Egypt and sees the blood on the doorposts of your homes, he will pass over those homes, sparing the firstborn. But he will strike those homes that are not covered in this blood. That's kind of the historical and religious context that's being referred to in verse 1. And now at the time of Jesus, for centuries, the the people of Israel have uh, observed this Passover meal precisely as God had instructed them in Exodus chapter 12. So it's the holiest of times. Not only is it sanctified time, but notice the sinful leaders in verse 2. You'd expect the religious leaders to be preparing for this time of worship. You'd expect them as men who were meant to be holy and to be an example to God's people to maybe be at home in their own homes preparing the meal and maybe reading Exodus chapter 12 to their children and explaining this religious tradition. But what do we find? Verse 2, the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him, that is Jesus, to death. Holy dates are coming and hateful men are scheming. What a shocking contrast between the celebration of verse 1 and the sinister darkness of verse 2. But there's a problem. The scribes and the chief priests of verse 2, they feared the people. See, the people respected Jesus. They they thought Jesus was a prophet. And at the end of chapter 21, verse 38 there, you'll see every morning, early in the morning, they were coming to the temple to hear Jesus teach and explain God's word. And so the crowd had no beef at this point with Christ, but but the religious leaders do. And for fear of the crowd, they're looking for a secret way to put him to death. It's a sanctified time with sinful leaders. And notice the the satanic influence of verse 3. Satan was on the scene. He entered into Judas Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. The text doesn't explain what this enter into involves, but he, he takes control of Judas. 
And he takes control of one who's in the inner circle. He was a number of the 12, which means he was one of Jesus's chosen apostles, his 12 closest friends and followers, if you will. And he put it into Judas's heart to betray the Lord. And Judas goes and he meets with the chief priests and the Pharisees. He, he meets with the, the temple guards and the sort of military unit there. And together they concoct a plan all under satanic influence. Beloved, I know it's not popular in modern scientific days to say things like this, but Satan is real. The devil is real. Satan was an angel of God. He was created to serve God like all angels. But one day he decided he wanted to be God. And he rose up in pride against God. And he led, the Bible says, a third of the uh, innumerable number of angels with him in his rebellion until God cast him from heaven. The Bible says hell was prepared for Satan and his angels. And yet he carries out his rebellion against the Son of God, against God, and we shall see against the people of God. He's real. And it's him that provokes Judas to betray the Lord. But notice they launched this secret plot in verses 4 and 5. That's the result of sinful leaders, and that's the result of satanic influence. They, they agree together. The, the other writers tell us, the other gospel writers tell us, for 30 pieces of silver to betray the Lord. And so Judas goes now not to, from, goes from listening intently to the Lord's teaching to looking intently for an opportunity to betray him in secret. That's what we see in verses 1 to 6. Let's make two quick applications. Beloved, these religious leaders fear man more than they fear God, don't they? And their lives are a parable to us. That if we fear man more than God, then we will serve man or serve ourselves rather than God. And if we fear man more than God, we will sometimes do the most wicked things at even the most holy times. We will hardly even recognize God when he is incarnate among us as they did not recognize Christ. It is for Christian people, for Christ followers, to fear God and not man. The Bible tells us in Proverbs repeatedly that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom and the, the beginning of knowledge. The Apostle Paul gives us an example in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, when he is in the midst of a dispute with, with those in Galatia. He says, do I fear man or do I fear God? Do I please man or do I please God? And the answer is obvious. He says, I fear God and not man. And this fear of God, this reverence for God, this is, Ecclesiastes tells us in verse 12, verse 13, this is the whole duty of man, to fear God and keep his commandments. You want to know what God expects of us? If you want to boil it down to one verse, that's a good one. To reverence him, to honor him, to tremble before him, and to serve him and not man. And we are kept from so much wickedness. And we enter into richness of life if we cultivate the fear of God. So let us be a people who do that, who cultivate and pray for and seek to honor God above all others, to honor God if no others, to re revere God in all things. 
But secondly, let us also be aware of Satan. As we said before, he is real, and his mission is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. It's a mistake to ignore him, beloved. It is foolish to pretend he doesn't exist. His handiwork is everywhere around us. Just think about the reality of greed and betrayal that we see all over society. Do we think that greed and betrayal come from God? Certainly not. Betrayal is Satan's idea and Satan's plans. But as those who have the book and believe the book, we know his tricks, don't we? Beware the adversary. The Bible says, resist him and he will flee from you. He cannot enter you as he does Judas here, not a Christian filled with God's spirit. Judas does not have that spirit, but we do. And greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. There's a greater power that lives in you, Christian. And it's a power that is at the ready to resist the enemy and to resist his schemes and to stand against him in the victory that we have in Christ. And when we stand, he shall flee us. So do not believe his lies. Do not entertain his whispers. He betrayed Christ. He will betray every Christian. Resist the devil and he will flee you. Jesus' betrayal comes prompted by Satan. But number two, Jesus' betrayal was predicted in the scriptures. In fact, the entire chapter here just in so many ways make allusions to the earlier parts of the Bible that we call the Old Testament. What we're seeing here in this chapter is the fulfillment of so many prophecies and themes that, that run through the scripture. This is a good place to just, if, if you're interested in the Bible and how it fits together, this chapter is as good as any to sort of settle into and to study, to see the unity of the book, and indeed to see the trustworthiness of the book. The scriptures are fulfilled here in this chapter in at least three ways. Number one, is fulfilled in time, I-N, time. It's fulfilled temporally. In other words, everything that happened at this time was a fulfillment of what Moses had commanded and what Moses had predicted, as we said, in Exodus chapter 12. They are obeying the Lord's prior revelation. In all of the preparation that we see here, in all of the eating of verses 7 to 14, we have the the Passover meal of Exodus 12 being demonstrated and played out in drama before our eyes. They selected a place in verses 8 13. Interestingly, even finding a place was a fulfillment of a, of a small prophecy of the Lord, wasn't it? They asked the question, where shall we prepare the Passover? And I, I love Jesus. Jesus says, look, just go into the town. You'll see a man carrying a bucket of water. Follow him. Go on into the house when he goes into the house. And when he turns around and says, well, you know, what's, what's up? What y'all want? <laughs> Tell him, the master said he's going to bring his boys over and have the meal in your room. Where the room at? Now, you know how that goes in our day. <laughs> you know, you, you're walking down the street, you carrying a bucket of water, and you look around and somebody following you. You speed up a little bit. They speed up. You start taking odd turns and corners and zigzagging. And they on your heels. You get to your door, and they on the step with you. That ain't going to go good. We call Brandon, don't we? <laughs> we call Brandon. But here, even that detail, that small prophecy is fulfilled in the Lord's time. 
This is an end time fulfillment. But number two, there's an end time fulfillment, an E-N-D time fulfillment. Or the fancy word for that is an eschatological fulfillment. Eschatology is the study of the last things or the end things. And, And what we learn here is that meal is prophesying. That meal is proclaiming. That meal is pointing not just to that day and the events of that day or or to the religious calendar in time. It's pointing to a time when time is not. It's pointing to a final fulfillment. And so prophecy in the Bible often works that way. There's a near-term and a long-term fulfillment of it. So look in verses 15 and 18. In verse 15, the Lord says he anticipated eating this meal. He's been looking forward to it with his disciples before he suffered, before he's crucified. But notice in verse 16 and 18, the Lord also anticipates eating and drinking again when there is fulfillment in the kingdom of God, verse 16. And when the kingdom of God comes, verse 18. So Jesus looks forward now to another time at the end when he will eat with us in the kingdom. That, that is the ultimate or end time fulfillment of the Passover and the Lord's Supper. And just as we took the supper last week, we were not just having that supper in that moment and celebrating it just for then. We were looking forward to the day when he comes in his kingdom and we eat it together with him then. The Passover gives way to the Lord's Supper, and the Lord's Supper points us forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb at the end of time. But there's a third fulfillment in verses 17 to 22. There's not only an end time and an end time, but there's also what we might call a Christological fulfillment. The Lord Jesus himself teaches us this. The scriptures are fulfilled in him. Even the Passover meal was truly about Jesus. See how he redefines the symbols of this meal. He, he takes the bread and, and says, this is my body. It's a symbol of my body broken for you. And he takes the, the cup of wine and he says, this cup is now a symbol of my blood poured out for you for a new covenant, for the forgiveness or remission of sins. He takes that ancient imagery of the Passover in Egypt and he reinterprets it in terms of his own person, his own sacrifice and suffering on behalf of us. Later in Luke 24, he'll teach two travelers on the road that all the scripture is about him. So we don't rightly understand any portion of scripture until we understand how it relates to and is fulfilled in Christ. It's how Jesus read his Bible. It's what he's teaching the disciples here. That in point of fact, he is the Lamb of God. He is the sacrifice that God has prepared for the consecration, for the salvation, for the redemption of his people. He is the Lamb of God who will be slaughtered and his blood will not be smeared upon the doorposts of our home. His blood will be smeared upon the wood of the cross. And the angel of death who passed over Israel will not pass over just our firstborn, but the, but the wrath of God, which is coming against the world, will be turned away for all those who are covered beneath the blood of Christ in faith. That's what this drama is about. Jesus is presenting himself as the Lamb of God. And isn't this how the Gospel of John opens in John 1, 29, where John the Baptist there, baptizing in the Jordan, anticipating the coming of Christ, finally sees Jesus on that day. And you remember what he says, those well-known words? Behold, the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sins of the world. All the other lambs, all the other sacrifices, what commercials and pictures and symbols of this one true lamb, this one true sacrifice prepared for God, sent into the world, nailed to a cross, bleeding to death, but resurrected in power and glory so that all who trust in him have their sins washed away by his blood and have his righteousness given to them by faith. This is the Lamb of God. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. This is the preparation for that sacrifice. Even the betrayal of Judas, mentioned in verse 21, was a fulfillment of Scripture. The psalmist saw a day when he writes that even his own beloved friend would betray him. That's fulfilled not just in David's day, that's fulfilled in Christ. Jesus says he's going the way that it was written of him. In other words, he's fulfilling the Scripture. But woe to the one who has betrayed him. Listen, beloved, in truth, Satan influenced Judas, but God was in control. Jesus was not killed because he was betrayed. He was killed because he was appointed to die by God. Even the most wicked and desperate acts of men cannot overthrow the plans of God. Even the deepest betrayals come through the good hands of God. And God is always at work ruling and bringing things to pass in accordance with his will to accomplish our salvation and to accomplish the blessing of his people. We celebrate Romans 8, 28, don't we? We all know it, even if we know nothing else in the Bible. How does he do that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose? The evil things, the bad things, the betrayals, the the breaking of confidences, the stabbings in the back the selling out of the Savior, all being worked together for good. Christ dying on the cross at the hands of his enemies, being worked together for the good of all those who would believe in him. Never, never, never think that Satan has the last word. He doesn't even have the first word. It is God who speaks in and through our suffering and God who speaks over our suffering the truth of his love and his goodness. And beloved, I hope you can see if you're new to the Bible that the ways in which Jesus fulfills the the prophecies of the Bible and and the patterns of the Bible down to intricate detail, I hope you can see that that means the Bible is trustworthy. It's true. Feel free to inspect it. Feel free to challenge it. Feel free to to look for discrepancies and contradictions and and problems. But but be open-minded as you do. And here's what you'll discover. That everywhere the testimony of the Bible is consistent. It's accurate. Not only with itself, it's accurate with the events of history. The people that we're reading of right now in in Luke chapter 22, many of them have, have left historical record testified to outside the Bible. This book is true. Its message is true. You can trust it. And if you trust it, it will lead you and point you to Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who is the Lamb of God, who was sacrificed to take away the sins of the world. And if you trust that Christ, 
you will be saved from God's judgment. Your sins will be forgiven. You will be considered righteous in God's sight by faith in this very Christ. And you will have a new life. You will be born again to live for God. I don't know of all the week's news. I don't know any better news. Of all the things that happen in your life, I don't know anyone who loves you more and will see you through more and will deliver you more perfectly than Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now think for a moment. Is there anyone that you think you should trust more than Jesus? Beloved, he's trustworthy. He's true. To prove it, he died for us and rose for us and is coming for us. Trust him. Give your life to him. If you want to know more about what that is or what that entails, see me, see the Christian friend who brought you after the service. We would love to tell you more. But our Lord's betrayal was not only prompted by Satan, it was predicted in the scripture. And number three, Jesus' betrayal purchases for us a kingdom. It just gets better and better. This chapter, trust me, beloved, in the time of these events is no doubt dark. Well, Jesus takes this supper and sits with uh, the, the, the disciples there and he tells them he's been looking forward to having this, su- this supper before he suffers. At the mention of that word suffer is a dark cloud that enters the room, I'm sure. And then when he goes from that to mention his betrayal, that the one who would betray him is, is in the room with him and, and eating with him, no doubt there's a, a dark cloud that enters the room. You notice in verse 21 or so, he mentions the, the betrayal and, and, and instantly they begin to wonder who's the one who's going to betray him. That must have been an interesting conversation. How did that work? You sitting at dinner, you having a meal, you having a Passover and and your rabbi, your master, your Lord just says to you, I'm about to suffer. And he's been teaching you that for, for weeks on end. And, and you don't really know what it means. But, but he's, he's serious about this suffering thing because he keeps mentioning it. And then he says, I'm going to suffer because one of you betrayed me. You know how that conversation goes, you know. Peter's always the first one to speak. Not me. I think it's Thomas. He always doubting, you know. Bro, don't believe nothing, man. You know, and Tom's like, no, no, not me, not me. And, and Andrew's like, no, look, I'm, I've, been, I've been with John the whole while. John, can t- he can testify as to where I've been. I ain't done nothing. And so it goes around and around. And then you notice what happens in the next couple of verses? You get down around verse 23, it goes from which one of us betrayed to which one of us is greatest. How does that happen? Isn't pride a powerful thing? Isn't it a blinding thing? They actually dispute among themselves which one is greatest. And, and you know how it goes. It goes from, well, I think so-and-so might have been the one to do it, and somebody else gets charged, and, oh, wait a minute, I didn't do it. I'm, I'm the most loyal follower he has. What do you mean you're the most loyal follower he has? I'm more loyal than you, and, and on and on it goes. And, and, and you know, somebody's like, well, when he's, when he's gone, I'm going to be the one that replaces him. Y'all going to have to follow me. Remember when Joseph had that dream? I had a dream like that too, where all y'all bowed down to me. You know, it get all super spiritual and stuff, right? 
And they're arguing about who's going to be king, which makes the response of the Lord so gracious. You see what he says in those verses there? Look with me at verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. As he's there in this meal and he wants to make sure his disciples are thinking right about the Christian life and he boils it down to two things, service and solidarity. Service and solidarity. He says, listen now, the great ones in the kingdom, they're not like the great ones in the world. He says, now when you look out into the world, you look at the Gentiles, you look at the pagans, here's what they do. They lord it over each other. They exercise rule over each other. They, they are power grabbers and, and power hungry. And you know the ironic thing? While they are grabbing power and, and oppressing and lording over you, you know what they do? They call themselves benefactors. They say they do this for your good. Even as they lord it over you, they describe themselves as philanthropists, as do-gooders, as, as benefactors. And Jesus says, not so among you, Christian. Not among my disciples. That's not what leadership looks like in the kingdom. I'm the only Lord. And guess what I did? I came into the world and I served. Oh, surely the one who sits at the table is greater than the one who serves the table in the world's eyes. Oh, and they must have been arguing that about who was going to be the greatest. Somebody must have said, um, he's the oldest, so he's the greatest. Respect me, I'm your elder. For Jesus says, no, listen, it's not about age, but, but the younger will lead you. He turns the whole world upside down because he's emphasizing that in his kingdom, among his followers, is service to others. That looks like leadership. And he bases it again upon his own pattern. He's the Lord of the table. But he's the kind of Lord that wraps a towel around his waist, gets on his knees, and washes the feet of the guests. He's a servant. And so it will be among his followers. And then he says this interesting thing. Did you notice it there in the middle, verse 28? He says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. You are those who have expressed solidarity with me. When, when, the, when the religious leaders opposed me, you didn't, you didn't run away from me. When, when, when my own family said I was crazy, you didn't distance yourself from me. When we were in cities and mobs got out of control, you didn't act like you didn't know me. You, you stood with me in my trials. You were with me. You expressed unity with me. You expressed solidarity with me. And it's in that solidarity and, and in that service that, that I've decided to give you a kingdom. 
It's the same kingdom, or it's like the kingdom, or it's like the way that God has given me a kingdom. The Father's given me one, and for all of you of faith who serve and stand in solidarity with the name of Christ, I will confer upon you a kingdom. And in that kingdom, we will eat and drink together. There's the supper again. We will see the final fulfillment of this fellowship that we are to have. We'll dine together like we were meant to. And this passage comes home to our own day, doesn't it? Giving us instruction for our own time. Beloved, it is the case that among Christians that leaders serve. Leaders serve. The man who's a Christian who would lead God's people who wishes to be served, he violates the very nature of leadership in the Christian church. The pastor who would accrue to himself riches and wealth and comfort and ease and notoriety and popularity and, and all the things that the world, the world desires on the back of God's people betrays Christ. What we do here, who we are here, it is not for the benefit, the comfort, the ease of the pastors. We must be those among you who serve. It's an honorable thing to be called pastor. It's a wonderful office that ought to be respected. But is it a betrayal of the trust of Christ and the people of Christ if I or Matt or Jeremy or the men we've nominated, Jahil and, and Andrew, if we would use that respect, if we would use that trust for our own gain? You see that in us? Really see that in us? You can verify that in us? Stop following us. Call us to repentance. Call us to account. Never follow a man who's chasing his own name. Never follow a man who's chasing his own belly. Never follow a man who lives for himself. Christ did not live that way. He came and gave himself and made himself a servant. And such a gift to a church is indeed a gift to the church. Receive it as such. We're going to be voting in a couple of weeks again on our brother Jahil and our brother Andrew. We've asked you to pray and to discern if this is the Lord calling upon their lives. So let us know if you observe something that's, that you, you think is disqualifying or problematic. What about Matt? I haven't heard anything but good things. If it's the Lord's will that they should be called to serve us as pastors, isn't it because Jahil is the kind of man who lays down his life to serve this church? Isn't it because Andrew is the kind of man who quietly serves and lays down his life for this church? Isn't it because we trust that in his grace, God has given us pastors to not only watch over our souls, but to do so in such a way as to lay down their own lives? Oh, beloved, <laughs> you do, you honor us. And let us always be a congregation that honors our leaders. And let us cherish that as a gift from Christ and praise him for leaders who serve. And let us stand in solidarity with Christ. I've been scratching my head and thinking through the events of the last week and sometimes, um, I sometimes befuddled. Um, I try to use social media in, in a way that I hope 
over the course of things speaks the whole counsel of God. And I don't make any pretensions to doing that well. Sometimes I, I write and sometimes I tweet and, and almost with the first comment, I wish I hadn't said something or said it differently and struggling to get the right balance. And, and this last week and for a long time, I, like many of you, like all of us, really, because there's no bystanders in this, shouldn't be, I, I found myself standing between legitimate, legitimate desires from multiple people. It's right when people write to me and challenge me about whether or not I've, something I've said duly honors good officers or whether it calls into doubt all officers. Now that's not always done well, but I don't bristle at the challenge. And it's right when people write and say, we need to stand with those who have been victimized, those whose lives have been taken, not by all officers by a long stretch, but by officers who seem to be acting rogue in this situation. We need to stand in solidarity with them. And so you, you hear these calls to be in solidarity with the victim and these calls to be in solidarity with the officers. And, and you hear these calls go out unreflectively, uncritically, so that we're called to stand with somebody without, without regard to what's actually going on in the facts. Have you figured out how to thread that needle? I certainly haven't. Here's what I have figured out reading this text this week. We're called to stand in solidarity with Christ. And it's as we stand with him, as we take upon ourselves his name, and as we endeavor to live as fully as we can, the whole counsel of God is that solidarity with Christ and the wisdom of his word, which will help us go as far as we need to go on the one hand with a group in solidarity with them, and as far as we need to go on the other hand with solidarity with others. But we are not fundamentally expressing loyalty to man we are most fundamentally expressing loyalty to Christ. And that means we have to have a critique and an encouragement for everybody. For his words surely will at some point will cut across all of our toes. His words surely at some point will affirm us and rebuke us. Whether we're thinking about the color of skin or the color of uniforms. Hear me say it another way. It is not the fulfillment of Christian response. It is not the fulfillment of Christian responsibility and Christian solidarity with Christ to refuse to offer a necessary word of either encouragement or rebuke to whomever is before us. We will have natural empathies with different groups in different situations, but they are not to be trusted. Christ is to be trusted. We will have natural responses, instinctive responses, some well thought out responses, but they are not to be trusted. Christ and his word is to be trusted. We must interrogate our assumptions. We must interrogate our loyalties to be sure that our loyalty is mainly to Christ and that we work out all the lesser authorities or loyalties, excuse me, under his authority. We are called like these disciples to stand in solidarity with our Lord. And like these disciples, the promise is a kingdom, a glorious kingdom.
an unshakable, unending kingdom. And this reminds us too that in all of our attempt to live faithfully in the world, we are not, beloved, fundamentally fighting for control of the United States. We are not fundamentally fighting for control of government, of human government. We are not fundamentally fighting for reform of police departments. We are not fundamentally fighting for the policing of communities and the changing of communities in, in quite, as if those are ultimate things. Those are all proper things in their proper place. What we are actually living for is another kingdom. What we are actually living for is another ruler. What we are actually looking for is a city whose foundation is not laid with human hands, a, a city whose foundations are not shaken. We are living for another kingdom where we will rule with Christ. And in that kingdom, sorrow will have met its end. Death will be forever eliminated. Tears will be forgotten. In that kingdom, we will only know his love, his grace, his mercy. And at this supper, Christ lifts our eyes to that day and that rule as our hope. Let's make sure our hearts are there in solidarity with Christ. Which brings us to another thing. Jesus' betrayal protects us from Satan. You see it there in verses 31 to 34. Jesus turns now and he looks at Simon Peter and he says to Simon... And he repeats his name, and you know that there's tenderness and compassion in that. Simon, Simon. And he says to Simon a most startling thing. He says, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. The, the, the adversary, the devil, has taken a personal interest in you, Simon. To destroy you, to undo you, and not only you, but, but all of you, all of his apostles there. Satan would have destroyed the church at its beginning. And you see Simon's response there, the self-reliance. Lord, this is not going to happen to me. I will follow you to prison. I will follow you to death. Maybe he's heard Jesus say just a couple of verses earlier, you stood with me in my trials, and maybe he's taking that to mean he will never fail Christ. Beloved, they printed on every mutual fund perspective, past performance is no guarantee of future results. And Simon thinks that his past performance of solidarity perhaps means his future result of, of never failing Christ. And he speaks up and says, not me, Lord. But we know the story. Jesus tells him, before the rooster crows, before the day, you will deny me three times. And sure enough, before the story's over, Simon will hear that rooster crow. And he will know that it's the referee's whistle catching him in the file. He is himself betrayed the Lord three times. See, betrayal is not something that just belongs to Satan and to Judas. Betrayal is something that we can experience as Christians that we can commit as Christians. And all of our sins are, are betrayals. But here's the difference. Judas went on to his destruction. But even when Jesus first tells Simon that Satan has asked to sift him, he gives Simon the good news. Did you notice it? He says, but I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. What a remarkable thing. 
that the Lamb of God prays for us, that he intercedes for us, that in the, in the conflict with Satan, our adversary, in the conflict with temptation to sin, even when we don't know how to pray, even when we have forgotten the words of prayer, even when we are so despondent that prayer seems useless, there is one that prays for us. There is one interceding for us. Christ the Lord himself has chosen that as his heavenly ministry to sit at the right hand of the Father to ever live to intercede for us. Beloved, if you are a Christian, you do need to realize that in your worst betrayals, Christ was already praying. In our worst failures in sin, Christ was already praying for us. His blood always pleads for us. He always intercedes at the Father's right hand. We are all of us like, like Peter and like Job. There's a warfare going on around us in invisible realms that we don't see and aren't always cognizant of. Satan is always looking for a way to steal and kill and destroy, but Christ is always on the job to pray for us and to keep us. What a merciful Savior. What a wonderful God. And it's in his betrayal that he becomes a perfect priest for us. He has suffered what we have suffered. So he's able to identify with us. And he's able to intercede for us. And so maybe you're here this morning and you are what we sometimes call a backslider. You have turned from Christ. Your heart has grown cold toward Christ. You have for a season indulged your sin rather than sought your Savior. And you are being reminded even now and on most days of your betrayal. The memory of his love haunts you. And maybe you have began to think that there's no way back. That you have gone so far that you cannot find a way. That Christ would not have you. Beloved, those are the whispers of Satan, not of Christ. Do you see what he says to Peter? He says, and when you have returned, strengthen, encourage, comfort your brothers. He anticipates Peter's betrayal, but he also anticipates Peter's restoration. And indeed, did not Christ in the resurrection come to Peter and three times affirm his love for Peter and affirm Peter's love for him? And here, Christ promises not merely the restoration of Peter to fellowship with himself, though that would be enough. Christ, Christ promises, he anticipates a greater usefulness for Peter. Oh, beloved, if you have backslidden, your life is not over. And your usefulness to Christ is not over. He still has plans for you, just as he still has love for you. And if you would come to him, he would not reject you. He would not crush you. He will receive you. And more than receive you, he will renew you. And more than renew you, he will use you for the glory of his name. This is the Lamb of God. This is what he's like. He's the friend of sinners. And the backslider can come to him. Come to him if that's you. And finally, Jesus' betrayal provides us a mission. You see that there in the words of verses 35 to 38, the supper has concluded. Jesus turns now to his disciples and he reminds them of a short-term mission trip that he sent them on. He sent them on a trip and he told them uh, to go out two by two and to take nothing with them because they were going to be provided for by him supernaturally. 
He says, did you lack anything on that trip? And they said, no. So he's reminding them of the sufficient provision of God. But this, he says, is different. He says, now now go, but this time take with you your money back. This time take with you your clothing. This time take with you your supplies. And go on this mission. It's not that he will not provide for them in this mission. It is that now normally he will provide through the church itself. And so it is right for us then to sort of remember this lamb slain for us and to go out into all the world proclaiming this lamb. Uh, this is why as part of our DNA as a church, we, we want this missions to the world to be an active part of what we do. And I don't know about you, but I've been so encouraged these last couple of weeks. With, with, with no leadership from the elders, <laughs> with no super program from the church, have you considered how many of us have gone out in the last couple of weeks to proclaim Christ to those who don't know? Think of our single sisters, A.C. and uh, Jordan, in different parts of South America, going to do the work of the Lord, to bear the gospel, to care for orphans, to, to teach children. Praise God for how he's placed that in their hearts and how he has caused them with, with, without hindrance, without delay, to, to move on what he's placed there. What a wonderful act of the Spirit. Or we think even now of the, of the Washington girls, teenage girls, under the tutelage of, of godly parents who themselves have this burden for missions to make Christ known around the world, have now not as a, as a sort of living on the coattails of their parents, but, but as an act of their own faith, have decided to go and do a, a short-term work in New Orleans. Teenage girls finding a way to serve the Lord in places other than their home. Praise God. Or Miss Conning, right now traveling in southern Africa and into South Sudan, saying, here I am, Lord, send me, even to a civil war-torn country, a place of deep and great need to do micro-enterprise and to speak a word of gospel. I don't know about you, but when I think about the work of the Lord among us, giving us a mission to let the world know of this lamb who was slain but is risen and who saves sinners. When I think about the Spirit's work. I am greatly encouraged. I hope you are. And I hope you'll pray that more and more our money bags and our clothing and all that we have will be pulled together in such a way as to see that happen more and more widely and more often. Praise be to God for the lamb who was slain. In his betrayal, he is guaranteeing us that betrayal does not have the last word. He is guaranteeing us redemption, even in the sorrow and the pain. He's guaranteeing us a home and a kingdom and a happiness where none of our enemies can reach. This home is coming. This kingdom is coming. And it belongs to all those who belong to Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, grant that we would be faithful in all that you have given us. 
Grant that we would be faithful to serve, faithful to stand in solidarity with your name, faithful to proclaim your name among the nations. Grant that we would not tremble at our enemy, but stand against him in the victory that Christ has provided. And grant, O Lord, that we would see as we do that his sorrows have become our salvation. That his suffering betrayal is how he tells us we're his beloved. O Lord, grant that we would see not only his cross, but see his crown. And that we would have hope in the midst of our distress and live faithfully until he comes. This we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.